when you open your Bibles there. Hello. When you open your Bibles there to Revelation chapter 10, look with me at verse number 1. And uh, just follow along with me as I read verses 1 through 11. Revelation chapter 10, verse 1. <clears throat> and I saw another mighty angel come down from heaven clothed with a cloud, and a rainbow was upon his head, and his face was as it were the sun, and his feet as pillars of fire. And he had in his hand a little book open, and he set his right foot upon the sea and his left foot upon the earth, and cried with a loud voice as when a lion roars. And when he had cried, seven thunders uttered their voices. And when the seven thunders had uttered their voices, I was about to write, and I heard a voice from the heaven, from heaven saying unto me, Seal up those things which the, which the seven thunders uttered, and write them not. And the angel which I saw stand upon the sea and upon the earth lifted up his hand to heaven, and swear by him that lives forever and ever, who created heaven and the things that are therein, and the earth and the things that are therein are, and the sea and the things which are therein, that there should be time no longer. But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he shall begin to sound, the mystery of God should be finished, as he hath declared to his servants the prophets. And the voice, of, of the voice which I heard from heaven spake unto me again, and said, Go and take the little book, which is open in the hand of the angel, which standeth upon the sea and upon the earth. And I went unto the angel and said unto him, Give me the little book. And he said unto me, Take it and eat it up, and it shall make the, thy belly bitter, but it shall be in thy mouth sweet as honey. And I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it up, and it was in my mouth sweet as honey. And as soon as I had eaten it, my belly was bitter. And he said unto me, Thou must prophesy again before many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. Uh, quite an interesting change from what we have studied here recently with regard to the seven trumpet judgments, this, this period of parentheses here in chapter 10. Uh, the reason it's a parenthesis is because it doesn't further the narrative of what we've read up until this point. So as I said before we prayed, what we see here is God giving us a little bit of a break. Um, he's, he's allowing us to take our heads above water for a moment. We've been reading nothing but cataclysmic outpouring of wrath and then all of a sudden this interesting this interesting situation where John is seeing this mighty angel another mighty angel coming down from heaven this angel is standing as it were with a foot on the sea and a foot on the land uh, and in his hand is this little book this little scroll your bible might read it's a little uh, it's a little book small book now, as we begin, many have asked the question, and maybe you have even asked this question, if there is a just and loving God, why would he permit such terrible, violent atrocities to plague the landscape of human history? Maybe you've heard that, maybe you've asked that question yourself. Uh, what I mean by plague moments of human history, I mean that uh, events such as 9-11 and 
um, the Oklahoma City bombing or World War I, World War II, things like this. Um, cataclysmic catastrophe on the pages of human history and so on down through throughout history. Um, really, it's the testimony of man's wickedness, man's sin, the reality that we live in a fallen world. Um, and ultimately, man in his fallenness, he wants to pin these evils on God rather than himself. He doesn't want to see that the sinful acts that take place are a result of his wickedness. He wants to blame God. And however, sometimes there are events that take place outside of our control uh, that are not necessarily related to our sin, that inflict great pain in our lives. Uh, many times the innocent are the recipients of injustices, such as robberies or murders or uh, a car gets hit by a drunk driver or attacks or uh, something along these lines. Like last night, um, I received a late night phone call that this young mother who was eight months pregnant had to give birth to a baby that she would not nurse, that she would not hold, a baby who had had died. And that's a life-changing event. She will never be the same. Her family will never be the same. Um, but only Christians can rest in events such as like such like that such as that only christians can rest in the arms of the lord so what is it that solidifies that that hope for us how is it that we don't say if there's a just and loving god he wouldn't allow this to happen to me he wouldn't put me through this he would he knows better i don't deserve this how come how come christians uh, we don't come away from circumstances like that saying those types of things. Instead, we rest in the arms of a holy and just and loving God, knowing that it is God uh, who is mysteriously in control of all events throughout human history. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 12. He is, uh, he is in control of all things, everything. There's not, an, there's not a maverick molecule in this entire universe. And he is, he is moving he is moving everything in the direction of his glory at the final consummation, the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, the establishment of his millennial kingdom and the new heavens and the new earth. He is moving all of these things in, in time and space. He's moving it in that direction. Um, and really, when we come to Revelation chapter 10, we are seeing the beginning of that uh, moment in history unfolding. Uh, what I mean by that is, you know, the, mother's, the mother whose baby enters into eternity before actually entering into the world will one day, this mother will one day hold her precious child in their glorified arms in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that a wonderful thing to think about? This is the hope we have as Christians. And um, this being the 10th chapter of the book of Revelation, we can glean from this chapter that the Lord will not allow injustice to go unpunished. That's what this chapter is about. The Lord will not allow these injustices that take place in our world he will not allow them 
to go unpunished. Now, in the case of a baby who dies, God is the author of life. God is the taker of life. This mother, I can guarantee you that she doesn't understand the mystery as to why God would allow such a thing to happen in her, in her life and in her husband's life. But she can rest, being a Christian, she can rest and trust that this is the perfect will of God, as hard as it may be. It's mysterious. We don't understand it. But when we come to chapters like this, we can see that, that we have hope, we have peace, we have uh, something to look forward to. Uh, in eternity. So let's look at three headings tonight as we look look at this passage. Number one, we're going to see this mighty angel's little book. This mighty angel's little book in verses one through four. In verses five through seven, we're going to see this mighty angel's oath. This mighty angel's oath. And in the last verses, verses eight through 11, we're going to see the mighty angel's command his command to John. So we have the little book, we have the oath, and we have the command. In verse 1, the mighty angel's little book. This is, as I said, a parenthetical chapter. It's in a parenthesis. It does not further the narrative. It's not the advancement of the narrative that has been going on so far. And we see the words, another mighty angel. Now, this is a different angel from the angels who are blowing the trumpets. That's what John is emphasizing. This is another, yet it is another of the same kind. That's very important for us to understand. Because if we read down through verse 1, we see he came down from heaven clothed with a cloud and a rainbow was upon his head. And his face was as it were the sun and his feet as pillars of fire. Now there are many commentators, many pastors and theologians who will say immediately after reading that first verse that this is the Lord Jesus Christ. I do not think that this is Jesus. I think this is an angel who has been given uh, overwhelming power and authority over these circumstances. And I'll show you why I believe that this is not Jesus. I think that this is a mighty angel of another kind, meaning a created being. Jesus Christ is not created. Um, that he is, this angel here is a mighty angel who is just different. He's an, he's an angel of a different kind. He is He has been sent from heaven. And notice this. We do not have a pinpoint identity of who this angel is, uh, but he has been given this overwhelming authority. That's what it means when he is standing on the sea and standing on the earth, as John would see it. He has in verse 2, he had in his hand a little book or a small scroll, a little scroll open. This scroll is open. It is different than the scroll that was mentioned in chapter 4 and chapter 5. It's a different little scroll. Um, The contents of this little book are unknown. However, it appears to be containing um, the written authority to the angel to complete his coming mission. Scrolls in the Bible are constantly referred to as representative of the Word of God. Constantly. Yes, Carl. I have a question. Is it any indication of the size of this angel? With the foot in the ocean and the water? It could be big. I, I, I don't know. Um, being a mighty angel, I mean, I think that's just the gift, the, the authoritativeness that he has been given by God. But the size, the magnitude, the, the, the span of his legs, 
I, I, I don't know. But, but we can relate him somewhat to the human stature because John goes up to him and John takes the little scroll and then John eats it. So a giant angel with a tiny little scroll in his hand, it doesn't really make much sense. But what John is seemingly describing is that this angel is of at least some proportion to a human because he goes up to that angel and he speaks with that angel. He takes the scroll from that angel's hand. Um, so it's very interesting. And, and you're kind of making a good point. You're pointing to something that's really, really kind of interesting because John, here in chapter 10, he mentions three times, he mentions this angel is standing upon the sea and upon the earth. Upon the sea and upon the earth. Upon the sea and upon... It's like John saying, he was on the sea and the earth at the same time. It it just was something that impacted John um, to such a degree that he mentions it three times in this chapter. Um, And everywhere else in the book of Revelation, he says the earth and the sea. The earth and the sea. Here in chapter 10, he reverses that. So he's, 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 he's emphasizing what this angel is doing and what he looks like. So that's a... Good question. As far as his size goes, I, I haven't come across anything about his magnitude um, in proportion to John. Yeah, yeah. I mean, what John's describing is something that looks very similar to what we see in Jesus in the chapter in the first chapter. Um, his hair was white. His eyes were as flame of fire. His feet were like burned bronze or fired bronze. And here, it's quite similar. Uh, but diving into this text, I can't come away with this, that this is Jesus Christ. I, I can't. One, Jesus is not created, and this is emphasizing a created being, um, another of, a different, of, a, of the same kind. <clears throat> so in verse 3, good question, Carl. Um, notice at the tail end of verse 2 that this angel's right foot is upon the sea and his left foot is upon the earth. Um, this is also symbolic of his authority over these uh, elements of, of, of the earth. In verse 3, and he cried with a loud voice, as when a lion roars. As means simile, so he's not roaring like a lion. This is not a lion-like angel. This, this is a bellow. This is a, a thunderous, loud voice that this angel erupts with. And notice the, the tense, okay? We're going to see a transition in time here. So the angel yells with a loud voice as when a lion roars, and when he had cried, or when he had shouted, seven thunders uttered their voices. So this angel is not the seven thunders. This angel <coughs> cried, and then the seven thunders took place. When he had cried, these seven thunders uttered their voices. And when the southern thunders had uttered their voices, I was about to write, John says. I was about to write these things. Um, But the voice from heaven saying unto me, seal up those things which the seven thunders uttered, and write them not. Now, when I was studying this passage, this verse, this verse just kind of stuck with me. It's really interesting in several ways. And... John's circumstance here, as he's recording this, he's recording an event. He's recording something that God tells him not to further describe. So, so what John is saying is, look, something happened, but I'm not allowed to tell you. It's, it, and this happened elsewhere in the scriptures. Can anybody tell me where you think this may have happened before when God said, don't write this? I'm going to tell you something, but then I don't want you to write this. There's a book in the Old Testament that was probably the 
outside of Ezekiel, it's probably the most prophetic book in the entire Old Testament. Does anybody know what it is? Daniel. Daniel. You cheater. (laughs) It's Daniel. Look at Daniel chapter 8. And, and what we see John is going through has so much Old Testament context. In Revelation chapter 10, John is, is, he is on par with the Old Testament prophets. And in Daniel chapter 8, look at verse number 26. Oh, good. Good deal. Yeah. And the, and the vision in verse 26 of Daniel chapter 8. And the vision of the evening and the morning which was told is true. Wherefore, shut thou up the vision, for it shall be for many days. So there God is telling Daniel, don't write about it. Shut up the vision. But then something happens to Daniel in verse 27. And I, Daniel, fainted and was sick certain days. I want you to key on that. Afterward, I rose up and did the king's business, and I was astonished at the vision, but none understood it. So... So what happened? This overwhelming information that came to Daniel, it literally made him sick. So, so keep that in mind as we look to what happens with John when he ingests or internalizes this little book later in Daniel, or Revelation chapter 10. Um, after the angel had sounded, these seven thunders ensued. And these calls from heaven, these thunderous noises came from heaven. We can't speculate what they are, okay? Remember, don't bring your ideas to the text. Allow the text to drive your interpretation. But God, the Lord, prohibited this. Um, Take your Bibles and look at Psalm 29. Psalm 29, verse 3. Remember, it's not the angel that's thundering. It's God. The angel shouts with a loud roar like a lion, as a lion. It's not a roar sounding like a lion. It's a bellow. But in Psalm 29, we, we kind of taste a little bit of the awesome voice of God, the, the overwhelming sound of God. In tw- uh, Psalm 29, verse 3, the voice of the Lord is upon the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord is upon many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. Yea, the Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. He makes them also to skip like a calf, Lebanon and Syrian like a young unicorn. The voice of the Lord divides the flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the hinds to calve and discovers the forest. And in his temple does everyone speak of his glory. See, this is the God you worship. This is just his voice. This is is the powerful God whom we serve, whom we worship, whom we love. He speaks and trees are turned to splinters. He controls it all. He, he even controls everything to the point where there's not a deer in the forest where God says, where God doesn't say, give birth, and that deer has a fawn. Every element, everything is under his control. 
This is a very unique verse heading back to Revelation chapter 10, verse 4. This is the sound of these thunders that John is experiencing. Imagine what John is feeling when he's hearing this and seeing these things. What an overwhelming, over, sensory overload that John is experiencing. And then what does John do? This voice says, seal up those things at the end of verse 4, which the seven thunders uttered, and write them not. So what's John do? He doesn't write it. He's obedient. We should be obedient to the word of God. Yeah, what examples kind of a thunder in the, in the summertime. Oh, I love. Sometimes it, it, it actually shakes. Oh. Like it, it, it sure does, or shakes the house, you know, the rattle, the windows rattle and it sure does imagine i mean and you can't help but say yeah there's surely a god when you hear that thunder that makes your chest move you know what i mean the good ones the really good boomers or whenever i was in oklahoma there was nothing i mean it was so beautiful you could see the storms coming at night especially the storms that would come at like sunset you could see the storms way, way, way off in the distance, and the, th- the lightning would be just popping like flash bombs. You couldn't hear it. There was no rain. You could smell the rain coming, but it would be miles and miles away. And then up above those clouds was just this explosion of red sunset. So it was just overwhelming beauty, and you just knew that storm was coming as the, as the lightning would just pop off in the distance, and then here it would come. It's, it just screams of the glory of God. Uh, as simple as a thunderstorm. And then when John hears this, this, this thunder-like voice, God says, don't write about that. <laughs> it's just, I think that's rather interesting. Um, this is a divine principle. Let's learn something from this. While God has revealed much, these are secrets which God has not revealed to man. They're locked up. And we must have, dear ones, listen, we must have a peaceful confidence, a peaceful capacity for such mysteries. In other words, you don't always need to know why. If God has done something in your life where that question why comes in and it wreaks havoc on your heart and mind and you allow that to to, to build and compile and produce bitterness in your life and because you've had this one question, why? Why, God? Why have you done this? Frankly, you don't need to know. It's not for you to know. And if he told you why, you wouldn't believe him. You wouldn't like it. We don't need to know why. But we're, such, we're, like, we're like little kids, aren't we? Nothing really changes from 8 to 80. We get to a point where we, you know, the, you know what little kids do. Those of you that have grandchildren and children, they just love the question, why? Why? Put your clothes on. Why? Eat your breakfast. Why? They have to have a reason why. We do the same thing whenever we get older. Well, why, God? Why do you want me to go here? Why isn't this not happening the way that I want it to happen? Why hasn't this already taken place when I think it should have happened already, God? If you love me, why would you do it? You know, it's, we don't need to know there has to be this capacity in our understanding that that god knows what he's doing and we can rest in that tell me what would your faith be like if god told you everything there would be no reason for faith there would be no reason to 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 trust him in the dark isn't it wondrous when he does lead you into the dark and when you come out of the other side and you see oh you were there the whole time 
It's a wondrous thing. We need to have this capacity for mystery in our understanding. Why? Because we take the promises of God and we recognize that, that he loves us. He has promised us through the work of Jesus Christ that if he promises to redeem us, we will have eternal life. These guys that teach that you can lose your salvation, I just, I just want to grab them by the collar and say, what book are you reading? If it was up to you to keep it, or if it was up to you to earn it, if it was up to you to secure your salvation, you can guarantee that you're going to lose it. But if it's up to him, he doesn't lose anything. <laughs> Verse 5. <clears throat> and, I, and again, this whole chapter here is just loaded with wondrous hope. And the angel which I saw stand upon the sea, verse 5, and upon the earth, lifted up his right hand to heaven. You say, well, my Bible doesn't say right hand. Well, this is the dominant hand. And more than likely, it's his right hand. So the, so the angel lifts up his hand to heaven, and verse 6, and swear by him that lives forever and ever. Pause. This is very important. Uh, Carl had mentioned size of the angel. I will mention posture. This is as if the angel is standing one foot on the sea, one foot on the land, and he is in a courtroom. Have you ever seen, you know, uh, uh, what's that old uh, TV show with Matt? Uh, Perry Mason. No, not Perry Mason. Columbo. You know, you have the, 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 the jury, the situation in the courtroom, and Perry Mason would have been a good one too. But, but then you have, this, you have this situation where the, the defendant or the, the, they have to stand, and they have to stand before the judge, and they must raise your right hand. That's what's going on here. This angel is being commissioned to do something. He is taking an oath that he's going to carry out what is going on. He swears by him, verse 6, that lives forever and ever. Uh, the posture is very, very important of what's going on. This is also reminding us that this is probably not the Lord Jesus Christ. I believe this is not Jesus Christ. I think that this is another mighty angel, uh, a, a, an angel other than the other seven. <clears throat> this is like a courtroom. It's judicial. It's official. It's systematic and orderly, just like God. It is militant. It's honorable the way he's standing, this posture. The oath is like that of an official delegate or, or a police officer of some kind, being commissioned for a duty. This is a promise to fulfill one's obligation. That's what this angel is doing. And, and then in the rest of verse 6, who created heaven and the things that therein are, and the, the earth and the things that therein are, and the sea and the things which are therein, that there should be time no longer. Now, let's explore that verse. This is quoting Exodus chapter 20. Don't turn there. Exodus chapter 20, verse 11. Can anybody tell me what Exodus 19 and 20 are? Exodus chapter 20 should be kind of locked in your brain. It's a very important moment in all of history. What? The Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai. In Exodus chapter 20, verse 11, this, the fourth commandment is the Sabbath. So we know how the Sabbath commandment came about. It points back to the creation, six days, literal days of creation, and then the seventh day God rested, and he, he instilled, he commanded the Sabbath, which, by the way, the Sabbath is the only commandment that's not repeated in the New Testament. It's the only one. All the other nine are repeated in the New Testament. But what we see here is a time change. John is pointing back to whenever God gave the Sabbath commandment and said that as the Sabbath means to cease from, right? 
to cease from your work or to rest. What we find here in verse number six is it is as if the hourglass, the sand in the hourglass of time is finally funneling through the final moments of all history. In other words, what John is saying is, let me point you back to whenever God created everything, and now he's going to destroy everything. Whereas before, when he commanded the Sabbath rest to cease from work, he's demonstrating that he ceased from the work that he committed in creation, and now time is up. Time is up. Time has run out. There would be time no longer. Now, not in everything. This is not like now eternity is going to be there. The time to repent, the time to turn to God, the time is up. This angel has authority to literally end the, the time of salvation. It is the, the, the final portions of the tribulation period are coming to an end. And John is recording here that the time is up. Uh, this is the voice of the seventh angel. Look at verse number seven. But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, that's referring to the seventh trumpet, which has not blown yet. When he shall begin to sound the mystery, you're going to want to underline that word. The mystery of God should be finished. There's this ceasing of the time. There's the time is up. It should be finished. What's the mystery of God? And when should it be finished? What is this mystery that, that is coming about that is, as the rest of verse 7 says, as he hath declared to his servants the prophets? That's talking about the Old Testament prophets. What, what is this? What's this mystery, this mystery of God? The mystery, um, if we read in the New Testament the word mystery, it's not like a, a, you know, the mystery series that you read as a kid where you're trying to find out and solve the mystery. What this is determining here is that this is a mystery that was previously before hidden or concealed, but is now revealed. It's not something mystical. It's not something that we can't get our hands on or, time, or our understanding on. The mystery that is being referred to here by John in chapter 7 is the kingdom of God upon the earth. In other words, this is the literal 1,000-year present in-person reign of the Lord Jesus Christ upon the earth prior to the establishment of the new heaven and the new earth. This is the mystery that John's referring to. Why? And why would he say that it's, it's what was declared to his servants, the prophets? Because your Old Testament is loaded with this promise. It is saturated with this promise that the Messiah will reign upon the earth. You can't, you can't get out of your Old Testament without seeing that clear as day. This is what was declared to the prophets. This was what was declared um, even, even now. That Jesus Christ is going to reign upon the earth during his thousand-year millennial reign. And at the, at the end of the thousand-year millennial reign, the new heavens and the new earth will be ushered in and consummated. Um, take your Bibles. Keep something there in Revelation chapter 9. Go to 2 Peter chapter 3. Go to 2 Peter chapter 3. You're not very far away. It's just a couple pages back probably for, uh, for most of you. <clears throat> 2 Peter chapter 3. And let's just look at verse 1. So remember, as you're turning there, John is recording that the time is up. 
And the mystery, the, the beginning of the millennial kingdom is right around the corner. The, the time of this transition is happening very quickly as John is recording this, um, which is still yet future, by the way. How could we say that this all took place in 70 AD? I don't get it. Look at verse number one, Second Peter chapter three, the second epistle, this second epistle, beloved, I now write unto you in both which I stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us the apostles of the lord and savior knowing this first that there shall come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lusts and saying now this is very important they're going to say in these last days they're going to say where's the promise of his coming where's the promise of his coming for since the fathers all slept, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. So, so in other words, these scoffers are saying, <laughs> you're telling me that he's coming again? How, how long has it been? Oh, 2,000 years? These scoffers are, they're, they're tongue-in-cheek remarking towards the end times. They're saying, <laughs> he's not coming. It's been 2,000 years. Peter continues, he says, for they, this they willingly are ignorant of that by the word of God, the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby, verse 6, the world that then was being overflowed with water perished. Funny note about that. Um, I was actually listening to a sermon today by a gentleman who said, uh, isn't it rather odd that we fill our babies' nurseries with Noah's Ark stuff? <laughs> like, we have such a, a, a children's Bible perception of um, judgment, so we cartoonize it. You know, we, we, uh, we put these happy little animals in this little bubbly-looking Ark thing, but underneath the water, there's like millions of people who died. <laughs> you know, the whole earth is drowned, but then we know float this through our babies. <laughs> anyway, I thought it was rather funny, but not, not funny, but... The whole earth was overflowed with water, verse 6 and verse 7, but the heavens and the earth, which are now by the same word, are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is, as, uh, one day is with the Lord as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. Please don't use that as a her hermeneutical device. Please don't use that to interpret creation. That's not what Peter is saying. What, what Peter is saying here, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is that God is so long-suffering, you can't even comprehend it. it, it it's, it's as if one day is as a thousand years. He is so patient. But in Revelation chapter 10, God says, time is up. Do you see, do you see, do you see the correlation here? That, that God is so long-suffering. He's so patient and loving kind, in loving-kindness. But there is a time when the time is up and there is no more time and it, the time is out. So, so don't take verse number eight and say, look, now I can interpret creation to say, look, it could have been a hundred million years because a day is a thousand years, a thousand years a day. That's not a hermeneutical approach. OK, just make sure that we don't do that. Verse number nine, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise. As some men count slackness, what's the promise? Peter actually defined it in, in verse number 4 of 2 Peter chapter 3. What's the promise? The promise is his coming. 
So where is the promise of his coming? In verse number four, Peter says he's not slack concerning his promise. In fact, everything is working exactly according to plan at the very moment. Verse nine, middle of verse nine, but is long suffering to us word, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, verse 10, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise and the elements shall melt with a fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in all holy conversation and godliness? How should this make you live? See how applicable this is? This is so highly applicable. Now, we're not expounding 2 Peter 3. I just wanted to point you to, to the partial understanding of this mystery that is mentioned in Revelation chapter 10. This mystery is that God has all along declared to his prophets that he will establish the messianic reign upon the earth, and following that messianic reign, there will be a new heavens and a new earth if the earth is dissolved with fire. Uh, It was demonstrated flooded with water in Noah's time. It will be burned uh, at the end of the age. This finally, going back to Revelation chapter 10, this finally brings us to verse number 8. Something very interesting transpires here, and this is the third heading. This is the mighty angel's command to John. This is his command, and the command is, take it and eat it up. In other words, eat the word. Verse 8, And the voice which I heard from heaven spake unto me again, and said, Go and take the little book, which is opened in the hand of the angel, which standeth upon the sea and upon the earth. And I went unto the angel and said unto him, Give me the little book. And he said unto me, Take it and eat it up. And it shall make thy belly bitter, but it shall be in thy mouth sweet as honey. And I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it. Ate it up, and it was in my mouth sweet as honey, and as soon as I had eaten it, my belly was bitter. And he said unto me, Thou must prophesy again before many peoples and nations and tongues. Does this jog your memory in any way? Have you ever read something like this elsewhere in the scriptures? Has anybody else eaten a scroll? Any in the Old Testament eaten a scroll or a book? Jeremiah? One other. Jeremiah was one, and Ezekiel was the other. Now these men, these prophets were commanded to eat the scroll. It's, it's symbolic of, quite clearly it's symbolic when we use Old Testament understanding and keeping with our interpretation of the scriptures. We see in the Old Testament this happened. It was inferring that they would internalize the word of God. Same thing is going on with John. God is saying, internalize this word. Make it a part of you. It's going to be a part of you in such a degree in two fashion. There's a twofold effect that we see here. What, what's that twofold effect? What happened whenever, whenever John ate the scroll? Twofold. There's two aspects of this. He he took the scroll, he ate the scroll, and then something happened. So stomach it became bitter, and one other thing. Sweet. When he learned and digested, he found out that God's good, and he's also the stomach was his God. He's also righteous and he's going to. That's spot on. That makes us sick. 
That's spot on. It's sweet and bitter. We should learn something from this in the sense that as, as believers in Christ, I mentioned in our introduction, I said there are many things that happen in our lives. There's war, there's COVID, there's, there's uh, the death of a loved one, there's, there's all these circumstances that have a negative element to them. And we have a tendency to say, surely that's not God, when indeed it is God who is in control of all of these events. And when we, when we come, into, come to understand that God is, is just and holy and righteous, these things that happen to us that, uh, that are seemingly injustices, somebody robs us. By the way, I just had my debit card hacked for the first time ever. Now, thankfully, the bank, you know, caught it and nothing happened. But you do feel the sense of violation. You know, some, somebody was able to try to use a number on the Internet somewhere, probably, and um, you, just, you do have this sense of violation. What if the bank didn't catch it? You know, they could have just robbed, robbed everything. But, you know, it was, it was quite an odd feeling to think that, you know, somebody was able to come in and take my information like that. Um, so when we think about the end of the age, there's an element of sweetness and there's an element of bitterness. Sweetness in the sense that we love the promises of God. Uh, we, we love to hear the gospel. The gospel is not just for unbelievers. The gospel is for believers. In fact, the gospel is only for believers. If you really want to think about it, the, the good news of Jesus Christ is what sustains us as believers. We, we need to know and continually digest the good news of Christ, that he has died in our place, that he has resurrected from the dead, that we have eternal life through him. He's the author and finisher of our faith. Uh, that our redemption solely rests in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And, and if there's nothing in our hands that we bring to this, we need to constantly preach the gospel to ourselves. It's the sweetness that we have in the word of God as we also internalize the word of God, the promises of God, the word of his grace, his divine character, his divine sovereignty, faith, the gift of faith, the gift of repentance, the special revelation of God. How beautiful and sweet is that? Um, God's love for his people, that God would love a sinner. That's pretty sweet. We have hope, we have redemption, we have the forgiveness of sins and the new covenant of Christ's blood, but yet it is bitter. So think of it this way. We have the sweetness and the promises of God through his word, and yet there's bitterness. There is persecution that will come as we are walking faithfully in the Lord Jesus Christ. We will experience persecution in this life. And a little bit of bitterness is whenever Christ says, take up your cross and follow me. There's a cross to bear. This could cost you your life. Uh, there will be rocks thrown at you. Um, as George Whitfield said, he was writing in his diary, and, and he's, he entered a, uh, a journal entry one day, and he said, I was privileged to suffer for the cause of Christ in that I was hit with a few dead cats and human feces after preaching. Yeah, I mean, could you imagine you're getting hit with rocks and feces and dead cats as people are just angry at you preaching and you're just throwing these things at you, you know? And he says, I'm grateful to suffer for the cause of Christ. There's some bitterness here. There's some sickness. As with Daniel, Daniel said, I was sick. I passed out and I was sick when I learned about this. So when we think about the end of time, every one of us in this room has unbelieving family members. There's a sweetness in knowing that God will save his sheep from their sin. 
but there's a bitterness in knowing that many of our family members are probably going to be in hell for eternity. There's a, there's a sweetness and a bitterness there. There's a, there's a sickness. There's a nausea there. Then the many hardships and trials that we endure in this very short life as believers, it pales in comparison to the eternal blessings which we will be a part of in the new heavens and the new earth. As we, as we freely see the Lord Jesus Christ reigning upon his throne. Note that the words of John in verse number 11, this is very important and we'll, we'll end here and we'll have some time to talk. The words of John, especially here in the book of Revelation, as well as 1st, 2nd, 3rd John and John, the gospel of John. The words of John would go on to be used to testify uh, of the goodness of the glorious gospel in Christ Jesus more than just Rome, in places more than just Rome, uh, beyond Nero, for those that would interpret that Revelation has been fulfilled in 70 AD. This is going to go beyond Nero, beyond Jerusalem, for two millennia to nations and kings. Look at verse number 11. Preach again, prophesy again before many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. This is going to go on and on. The preaching of this good news through Christ is going to go on. The word will never fail. The word of God will endure forever. The grass withers, the flower fades, but our word, the word of the Lord will endure forever. Um, this is the wonderful, beautiful, sweet promise that we have in the words of our Lord. The challenge that we should come away with with Revelation chapter 10 is, are you eating the word? Are we eating the word? And what I mean by eating the word is, do, do, you, do you sit upon the word and pray that God would teach you and open your eyes to the word? Do you meditate on the word? Do you study the word intently and deeply seeking to know God? Do we internalize the word? Do we ask God to teach us and lead us according to his truth without us bringing our own ideas and desires to the text? Just remember in Revelation chapter 7, verse number 1, uh, verse number 9, I'm sorry. Revelation chapter 7, verse number 9. After this, John says back there, I beheld and lo, a great multitude which no man could number of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palms in their hands, and cried with a loud voice. Just, just picture the sound. Cried with a loud voice saying, Salvation to our God which sits upon the throne and unto the Lamb. There's a picture of heaven. What's it sound like? There's a multitude of nations that we can't even understand Multitude and multitude of all people, and they're just shouting, salvation to the Lamb, salvation to our God. They've been redeemed. And they've been redeemed through the tribulation period. What a wonderful promise. So the word of God will endure forever. <clears throat> we can take great refuge and comfort in knowing that. I'm thankful for Revelation chapter 10 to kind of let our heads above water here and remind us of the promises of God through his word. Any thoughts?